Hey everybody, James Brierton here with a quick note before we begin this week's episode. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live on Wednesday, October the 16th. You're going to hear some relevant weather information as it retains to our live broadcast. We kept it in because we felt it was relevant to the ongoing big picture conversation, not only with what's taking place in the episode, but as we continue to cover the drought situation here in the Carolinas. Now, with that being said, we actually want to hear from you on what you think about this practice. What is it that you would like to hear in our podcast feed? Are you already watching our live shows Wednesday night and want to tune in here for daily forecasts? Or are you not watching those live shows Wednesday night and are looking to take the episodes new and fresh with you on the go? So please look for the link in the show description to send us a voice message. We just want to hear your thoughts on how we can improve the Carolina Weather Group podcast to make it as best as it can be for you. Now, I'll stop talking, and we'll get right in to this week's episode. Hello, everyone. I am a Carolina Weather Group uh, panelist, Scotty Powell here with you, and this is the Wednesday, October 16, 2019 edition of our little weather get-together. We are glad to have you tonight. Uh, joining us tonight is the South Jersey Climate News Project, and they're going to be talking to us about uh, some of the things that they're doing in South Jersey that are talking about the climate and how it's impacting uh, not only their area, but um, all of us, honestly, uh, are, are impacted by the, the warming climate and, and climate change. So uh, we're going to go into uh, into that and what they are doing up in South Jersey tonight. So uh, we are looking forward to that. Uh, you are watching us on our live stream. So if you have any comments, uh, please feel free to drop them in the comment bar. Uh, we'll be monitoring those throughout the show. And if uh, you have any questions for our guests, we will make sure we get to those. Uh, before we uh, get into tonight's, uh, into tonight's show, we want to talk a little bit about the weather. Uh, it has been kind of boring around here lately, but we finally got our first um, official fall cold front move through the area. And so uh, that has uh, given a lot of the areas some much needed rainfall. I'll take over here for... Uh, North Carolina, and then I'll tell it over to uh, to Shay and, and uh, Evan, who are in South Carolina. Uh, here in North Carolina, obviously, uh, some much needed rainfall, anywhere between a quarter to a half an inch. Uh, I did see some locations up towards the uh, the Raleigh, Durham, uh, Greensboro, Winston Salem area pick up close to an inch of rain. So that is uh, some good news for those areas. And then tonight. Uh, this cold front is ushering in some much cooler temperatures and gusty winds. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on in tonight's program. Uh, Shay and Evan, uh, you guys also were able to see the, the cold front move through, and you guys actually picked up a little bit more rain than we did here in North Carolina. Yes, yeah, Scotty. Today was one of the only days um, in my two years in Charleston that I've had to walk to class in the rain. Um, that just really never happens because it's so dry here all the time, or at least it's been so dry over the last year and a half. Um, and it's been real rainy down here. I'll kind of talk to the West North Carolina side of things and I'll save the South Carolina Charleston area for Jay. Obviously he's been here longer. Um, but for Western North Carolina, the cold front moved through earlier this afternoon, uh, brought, brought with it a bunch of gusty winds and the cold air is really just rushing in now. Um, the higher peaks are currently dropping below freezing. Mount Mitchell's sitting around 31 degrees. Um, and this is the first time since probably May, um, that anywhere in West North Carolina or the Carolinas in general have been below freezing. Um, so this is the first real taste of fall. Um, and, you know, we're looking towards winter almost towards the end of October. 
So probably talk about that a little bit later because that's an exciting topic that everyone wants to talk about. Um, but over the next couple of nights, we're going to see temperatures dropping down into the mid to lower 30s. Not much frost happening tonight because of the wind and that constant wind movement will keep the um, you know the frost off the grass and off the low-lying surfaces. But tomorrow night and potentially even Friday morning for some of the lower valleys, um, there could be frost and temperatures right down near freezing. Not much precipitation with this cold front, unfortunately. Um, all of the rain moved through over the weekend and no snow. Um, this is it's really dry and really windy. Uh, winds will be peaking tonight around maybe midnight to 2 a.m. Gusts up to 35, 40 in the valleys, um, maybe upwards of 75, 80 on top of the mountains. Um, so, yeah, this is just a dry northwest flow that we're in right now. Um, and I'll toss it over to Shay. All right, Evan. Yeah, I know over you, you look forward to seeing the northwest flow as uh, things start to cool down and the chances start to go up for that, that uh, S word that we won't mention yet. Uh, but, yeah, for, the, for South Carolina, for the coastal South Carolina area in the Midlands, uh, you know, we're still working through some drought situations across the Midlands, not so much at the coastline until you get to the southeastern quadrant. But uh, for the most part, the cold front, you know, it, it made it through this morning. We had uh, some dry slotting come in by about late morning to noon. So things cleared out, ended up being a beautiful afternoon. We're looking for a beautiful day tomorrow in the low 70s. Uh, tonight, I think we're getting down into the low 50s for lows. So that's going to be feeling a little bit chilly when you walk out tomorrow morning uh, and tomorrow night as well as the temperatures drive down just a few more degrees into Friday. Then we bounce back up into the 70s, maybe low 80s over the weekend. Uh, but we are looking at a uh, system in the Gulf, and I'll be talking that in a little while, that could be bringing quite a bit of rain over our area. It just depends on how fast it's going to be moving. I'll go ahead and share a screen real quick. I wanted to, to quickly show you this uh, just for uh, a sense of what's going on in the southeast for drought situation. There's still a lot of areas of extreme drought in the D3 on the monitor here. Um, we haven't gotten into exceptional yet, but... I do think with some of the Gulf moisture that's going to be coming up from the Bay of Campeche and up across the northern Gulf states and into the southeast, we may start to get some of these colors down into the D2 and D1, uh, some of these reds. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see how much rain falls and what the forecast is. But for right now, we're just we're, we're waiting to see if that system is going to come together. It hasn't quite developed the surface low yet. But either way, uh, hopefully Mother Nature will provide and help with balance on our drought. And with that said, I'll go ahead and kick it back to you, Scotty. All right, thank you for that, Shay. We are going to go a little bit more into those drought numbers later on uh, in the program. Uh, I want to bring in our guest tonight from the South Jersey Climate News. Uh, Peter, I'll actually, uh, you, we're actually interviewing one of our panelists tonight. That's uh, kind of a first, I believe. So, Peter, I'm going to uh, toss it to you and let you introduce us to, uh, to everyone tonight. All right, sounds good. Well, uh, first off, let's go with Mark Berkey Gerard, who is a journalism professor at Rowan University. Uh, who's joining us tonight, and also Diane Gariantes, who is also a journalism professor at Rowan. Uh, these two are the advisors for South Jersey Climate News. And then we also have Corey, who is a student at Rowan and is also part of our team. So, Mark, or Scotty, no, Scotty is leading the chat tonight. So, Scotty, uh, let's get this started, huh? Yeah, that that's fine. Uh, Evan, I'll, uh, I know you've got our first block of uh, questions, so I'll let you go ahead. Yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and take over here for the first segment of the show. Um, so I'm going to target this first question at you, Mark. I'm sorry, we're leading right off the bat with you. But can you tell us a little bit about South Jersey Climate News um, and just a general what it is? Sure. Uh, thanks for having us on tonight. Uh, this project is a student-run news project. Uh, we're located in Glassboro, New Jersey, which is about 
25 miles southeast of Philadelphia. Um, so it's, it's kind of a mix of suburban, uh, rural, and then uh, not too far from the, from the Jersey Shore as well. So we wanted to create a, a student-run project where students could report on things happening on campus that are related to the environment and sustainability, but also in the surrounding areas. Uh, so we came up with the idea, we launched it, uh, we got a little bit of funding, um, and so we're kind of in our, we've been kind of ramping up this semester, and it's been growing ever since. So, uh, Diane, do you want to chime in a little more about the, the beginning of it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I can. I mean, I think part of it is just what's been going on with journalism, you know, recently. I mean, journalism's been having a lot of um, changes, and especially economically, we've seen a lot of local journalism kind of um, slowing down. You know, a lot of small community news organizations um, closing shop. And so we felt like as a university, maybe we could help fill some gaps with some real, you know, with some reporting on some important issues, including climate change. Because where we are, we're, you know, in South Jersey, we are, as Mark said, we're not far from the coast, from the South Jersey coast. There's bay areas around us. There's um, a Pinelands region, which is a very... Um, you know, a huge area of uh, natural wooded areas. And there's a lot of agriculture and agriculture in the area. So we're, it's a part of New Jersey. People think of New Jersey as more of an urban state, but really the part of New Jersey that we're in, it's, it's pretty rural and it's really potentially, you know, already we're seeing effects um, on uh, because of uh, climate change. So, so that's why we wanted to get this started. So it's been a fun project to work on. Oh, so you guys are taking somewhat of a collaborative approach towards this journalism. Uh, it's not just your university, but it's also other universities. Uh, I'm going to turn, Diane, can you tell us a little bit about the other universities that you're working with? Yeah, we are, um, we're working with actually a number of organizations. We're working with news organizations, which um, is really what we want to be doing. We want to work with other news organizations. We're uh, partnering particularly with a small startup in Atlantic City called Route 40. Um, and uh, so we've been working a lot with them, uh, doing, uh, working on various articles and projects with them. Um, our student reporters are working with them. We're also part of... Um, we also have other news partners that we're working with. We aggregate a lot of content from, with them, both from Philadelphia, WHYY, which is the public radio station in Philadelphia, um, some of the television stations in the area, and some of the larger um, news organizations in the state of New Jersey, we're working with them. And then, um, and I think Mark could speak best to this, we're uh, also collaborating with other student organizations um, throughout the state. In fact, Mark, do you want to talk a little bit about what we're doing um, with the Center for Cooperative Media? Sure. Um, there's a project in uh, New Jersey that works to get news organizations working together, and then they kind of have a student arm as well. So we're working with six other universities uh, in New Jersey, uh, and once a year we all pick a topic uh, that all the student journalists are going to cover. So it's kind of we're covering things individually, but then it creates this collective uh, to kind of get more attention. And there's also some collaborative work where students from different universities are working on kind of similar stories. So this year, uh, the students actually picked climate as the topic that they wanted to cover. Um, so that's a really exciting project to be working with, you know, people from different kinds of institutions, 
um, North Jersey, which is kind of more urban and closer to New York uh, and, and us. And so it's cool to see, you know, the stuff that the students are coming up with together. And it also just gets more attention for student media across the state. Uh, so it's, we're trying to get, you know, student voices and reporting into the kind of the news cycle of the state. Well, that's awesome. That's you know, some great information. I'm going to transition a little bit to Corey and Peter. Um, you know, as Scotty was saying, this might be the first time we've ever interrogated a panelist. Um, hmm. So I'll, Peter, I'll let you lead off um, and then I, you can toss it to Corey. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved with uh, South Jersey Climate News. <laughs> Funny story to this. Uh, so back in, this had to be the uh, fall of 2018. Uh, it was the last week of the semester. And I had Professor Gary Antes for a class. And she just kind of nonchalantly mentioned that there was going to be this collaborative project going on about climate change and yada, yada, yada. So I was like, oh, that sounds pretty cool, whatever. So about a couple days after that, I get an email from Mark Berkey Gerard. Now, let me tell you something. I never interacted with him before I got this email. We never met each other. So getting the department head, getting an email from the department head, I was scared. Thought I got expelled or something. So <laughs> finally, I opened the email. Big, long thing about this project and uh, I should join and all this stuff. So I left it in my inbox for a month. I did not answer it. I didn't look at it again. <laughs> so. Uh, for the spring of 2019, I finally responded back. I did agree to join, and uh, I've been with them ever since. And uh, I have to say, I have enjoyed my time here uh, since I started. It's a great project. Uh, really learned a lot, a lot of eye-opening experiences. So uh, I'm glad to be part of the team. Corey, go right ahead. Yeah, I would think my story uh, echoes Pete's in a way. I first discovered it when I was just scrolling through my emails. I'm like, oh, who's this Mark Berkeley Gerard guy? <laughs> but um, I'm, I was looking for an experience that was going to be outside of the classroom, something that uh, was going to give me um, yeah, real, a real experience. And uh, that's, that's why I joined, and it, it's really delivered on that. Well, that's awesome. And Peter, I can definitely relate to the, uh, being a little bit afraid of an email from a department head and leaving it unanswered for a little bit too long. I've been there very recently. Um, so now I want to ask about the website that y'all run. Um, many of us were just visiting it before the show and getting familiar with it. And for the listeners and people that are watching, um, it's sjclimate.news. I just said that wrong. Someone correct me when, you know, after I finish here. Um, but Mark, can you tell us a little bit about this website and how y'all are incorporating all these different articles together to make one complete climate story? Yeah, I mean, there's kind of a couple levels. Um, there's this the stories that the students are doing. So I'm just checking in with them weekly and assigning, sometimes it's assigning stories, events they want to cover or particular issues. Um, so we're doing that. We're collaborating with the, the student newspaper at Rowan, which is called The Wit, uh, which Peter and Corey are both involved in uh, as well. So that's uh, kind of a new, like a nice uh, connection and to help get their stuff out more. Um, we also work, as Diane said, work with this uh, a, a startup in Atlantic City called Route 40. Um, and Atlantic City has uh, a lot of issues going on. Um, there's a lot of localized flooding um, that comes from at high tides. Uh, the, the water comes back into the storm drains and then comes up through the sewers. Um, 
So that's kind of a, a project we've been working on with them. Uh, last uh, this summer, the state of New Jersey approved um, a big uh, wind farm project, offshore wind farm, the first in the country. And um, so we did some coverage of that kind of leading up to it. And then uh, as it was announced, so that's actually right outside of Atlantic City, which is another kind of interesting connection um, to that. And then uh, we're working on you know, projects and ideas with these other universities. Um, and we're hoping to do some work um, in the future with uh, a, a organization called uh, Climate Central, which is kind of a news and research um, arm that deals with a lot of environmental things. And then uh, NJ.com, which is a, a big online news site. Uh, we're going to look at some like development along the Jersey Shore on the bay sides and the ocean sides um, where people are, do are building giant vacation houses that uh, are going to flood uh, in not very, very long amount of time. So kind of looking at who's building these, what are cities, how are they preparing? Uh, so there's kind of uh, some different levels. And then we also kind of have some uh, agreements with some news organizations that let us aggregate their stuff. So it's that's kind of the main plan. Cool. I'll hop in just for a second here. I wanted to um, ask, when when did this all kind of start? Like, is this sort of a post-Sandy effort, or is this something that was um, kind of existing beforehand? But but as Diane mentioned earlier in some of, in some of our pre-talk, that some of these things kind of went away, and so you're kind of filling a niche here. Um, and was this more or less coming from maybe some additional funding from Sandy, or was this born right out of just university-level uh, research? Uh, I mean, I can uh, speak to that. This, this actually came out of the university, this, this idea. Um, and again, part of it was just that we were looking as a journalism department, seeing what's going on with the news, you know, it's called the news ecosystem, like what's going on locally with news and how, you know, organizations are struggling, news organizations are struggling economically, there's fewer and fewer reporters, you know, newsrooms are shrinking. And meanwhile, there's a lot going on you know, that needs to be reported, including, again, in our area, climate change is huge because it has, you know, New Jersey's one of the fastest um, heat, you know, states that's uh, fastest warming states in the country. Um, and sea level rise for us here in New Jersey, it's compounded because it's not only is there sea level rise, but the land is, is actually sinking. So we're getting, uh, so the coastal areas are really being affected. Um, and Atlantic City is actually a great place to start because, uh, I mean, anywhere along the coast, but, you know, Atlantic City, you've got a lot of, um, you've got these huge casinos that are there. And so you've got the U.S. Army, you know, the uh, Army Corps of Engineers, you know, in there putting in, pro you know, building projects and planning these big projects. But then you've got these back bay areas behind, you know, where the casinos are, where people are living and they're getting flooded, you know, between the tides and the floods. Um you know, in the in the sea level rise, it's just you know their their quality of life is just being deteriorated all the time. And big storms come in, and you know you've got um, a lot of property damage. And um, so, Superstorm Sandy certainly woke everybody up, um, but really, it's becoming more and more just a, a regular occurrence with flooding and hotter temperatures and severe storms. You know, just like all along the coast, but in New Jersey, we're start we're certainly feeling it. So we wanted to start reporting on that. So we actually that's why we created this and began to build partnerships. And really, we're we still feel like you know Mark can speak to this too, but I still feel like we're in the beginning stages of it. You know, we're 
we're really getting it off the ground. We're building partnerships. We're getting students who are interested in this. We're actually starting to create courses at the university and we're looking for additional funding. So we're really trying to build something here that'll, that'll last, you know, that'll be around for a long time. I think that's fantastic as, as our, our coastlines, even all the way down here, uh, you know, coastlines are more vulnerable now. And so everyone's trying to figure out ways to mitigate risk and, and uh, create more resiliency along the coast. King Tide Initiative being one with, with SCD heck and, and multi-state coordination there. Uh, but so, yeah, it's pretty fascinating to see what, what you all are doing as well. So back to you, Evan. Yeah, so I think I'm going to talk to Scotty here in a second. But I want to say one last thing that uh, as some of the listeners know and um, you guys generally know, uh, I go to the College of Charleston in downtown Charleston, and it's cool to see the connections between what y'all are doing climate-wise um, to, to what we're doing here at the College of Charleston and the focus on um, sustainability in the future and how we're going to have to adapt um, as these sea levels are rising. And even as, like you said, Diane, the, the ground is sinking in some places, which is a terrifying thought. Um, the Charleston Peninsula has so much incredible and um, historic architecture, um, as well as so many places you know, have that up and down the coast. Um, it, it's just cool to draw these lines um, and, and see how different universities across the Eastern Seaboard are discussing this and getting involved. You're talking about Charleston. Um, the Outer Banks experienced this last week, a, no real hurricane, um, not even really a nor'easter. We had a few storm systems off the coast, uh, but we saw enough um, of, of the tides move in during high tide that we saw a lot of overwash on Highway 12 out in the Outer Banks where it was shut down. And so uh, we can all attribute that to, to sea level rise. And, and as the, the sea level rise continues and continues, we're going to see more and more events uh, take place, which kind of leads me into what I was wanting to talk about, Diane, with you. Um, you talked a little bit about why New Jersey Atlantic City uh, has been kind of the focus of this program. Uh, what are some of the things that you guys are learning from that? I know you've taken some trips out to Atlantic City. You talked to some residents. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, this the particular location that you're looking at and some of the, the facts and information you're getting from, from that. Um, yeah, I mean, I can, can talk to some of that. I mean, certainly, like I said, we've been focusing on Atlantic City. Um, and really, you know, as much as um, this is about weather, and it is, it's about weather and climate and um, and changes in the environment and changes with wildlife and a lot of various changes, but it's also about people and what's going on with their lives and what's happening and um, people are living with it every day. And so we're in Atlantic City, we're looking at, um, you know, various projects that are being proposed um, to mitigate you know, any kind of uh, sea level rise and some of the storms coming in. Um, looking at flooding, flooding is a huge problem there, um, particularly like I mentioned, the back bay areas in um, Atlantic City. Um, so it's really looking at, you know, what what's happening now, what's being planned for the future and what the, you know, what the potential is um, in terms of what the potential is for future impact. Um, but also, of course, what's happening today. So, um, like I said, there's various projects that are being uh, proposed for Atlantic City um, that we're looking at, that we're talking to people there about. Um, um, a lot of it is um, trying to see, in fact, Corey's actually working on an interesting project right now that he can talk about um, with the bulkheads in Atlantic City. And I should probably let you, Corey, talk about that. Sure. The story you're working on. So, um... Like when we went to Atlantic City uh, about three weeks ago, 
we uh, got to speak to a lot of the residents there about the issues. And um, one of the things that we noticed was, especially in the Back Bay area, there was a huge difference in the quality of bulkheads between uh, Ventnor City and Atlantic City. They're right next to each other. And um, so with the help of Route 40, uh, the news organization that we're working with, I was able to get in contact with uh, a commissioner in Ventnor City, as well as a member of the Casino Redevelopment uh, Authority, which are the people kind of responsible for rebuilding a lot of the just infrastructure in, in Atlantic City. And what he had to tell me was uh, just Ventnor's uh, ordinance on the bulkheads is much more enforced than in Atlantic City. See, the issue is um, a lot of the bulkheads are owned by uh, owned privately. So um, it's hard to get people to spend the money to uh, fix them. But if you don't, it causes problems for the whole community. So Ventnor City really enforces it more than Atlantic City, which also has been lowering their insurance. So that's a, a big deal. So the whole point of the story that I want to write is to maybe just uh, propose some solutions that Atlantic City could use to uh, improve the situation. Corey, um, Peter's showing some pictures that you guys obviously have taken through these trips. Uh, you talk a lot about businesses and, and speaking with city officials. Um, have you been able to talk with some of the residents? Have they experienced this? Uh, has it been noticeable to them? Uh, what are their stories uh, as you guys uh, continue to look at sea level rise? Definitely, we talked to uh, one man, Samuel, who lives in Atlantic City. And he was sharing just a lot of just nightmare situations with us about, you know, he comes, he leaves his front door and there's just a, the sea's right there. <laughs> the coastline is his uh, front door, so to speak. And they're experiencing um, horrible floods about twice a month from what they were telling us. And uh, yeah, no, it's just, it's just, it's definitely a serious problem. It's nothing to be overlooked, which um, it kind of is in a way. Corey, I'm curious to ask you this. Um... Because the Outer Banks, I'm not sure if you followed that. I've been to the Outer Banks, but yeah. I'm not sure what's up to date with it. Yeah, so the Outer Banks last week, they experienced this overwash from the ocean. Um, and a lot of homes, a lot of these are vacation homes, but still some people live there. Um, there were pictures of, of cars that were just um, sand up to the doors and, and stuff like that. And uh, some of the people were asked, why, why do you continue to suffer through this? I mean, do you not want to move to so you don't have to face this? Uh, you're talking of, of the Samuel. And he said, you know, you're, you're seeing this every uh, couple, of, or a couple of times per month. Um, has, has people there realized and got maybe fed up and said, you know, I think it, it might be time to move? Well, I think there would be a lot of people that want to move, but it comes down to the issue that no one wants to buy their homes. You know, so it, it, a lot of people are stuck in a uh, just overall crappy situation. Yeah, it to totally makes sense. Because, um, you know, why would you um, want to buy a house in the on the coastline in this day and age? Right. Yeah. I mean, it totally makes sense. And, um, you know, with you, you folks who are watching tonight in the Carolinas, imagine um, the year after year after year of flood events that we've experienced over the last four or five years and all these homes that are in flood zones, you know, why would people want to buy those homes? And just like Corey's talking about, why would folks want to buy homes that continue to, to go through this flooding? Um, Shay, I'll, I'll kick it off to you. I know you're wanting to talk a little bit about some of the information and what um, the end game is for, for the, the research. Yeah. So, um, you know, this one, Corey, I'm going to bounce this over to your court again and we'll work it around the table. 
okay. but some of the articles, some of the stories that you're covering, some some of the current and the past um, ar articles on your website that I'm seeing, uh, some of the work that you've done with the climate strike that occurred last month, it seems like there's a pretty large movement starting to come together. I think folks of all ages are starting to see a pattern. They're seeing things uh, in a different perspective now, and especially our younger group, our younger generations coming up, they're getting on board with, with some of these facts that are sort of in their face to, to go with in the future. Talk a little bit about what you did with the climate strike last month. So um, me and another uh, member of the South Jersey Climate News, Sarah, went and we met up with Mark there too. We went to the Philly climate strike, which was a part of a overall global movement. And if you remember all over the world and the largest metropolitan areas, you know, a lot of young people who were organized it too were there to just uh, protest. And I think the main thing to get out of this is that it was sending a message to um, the politicians that you have a large uh, group of young voters that believe in climate change, which is, I think, much different than um, the generations before us. I think that's uh, something to be very optimistic about. Because at the end of the day, um, when 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 the pot, when the people who want our votes see this, they're going to have to appeal to it in some way. Sure, sure. How many um, how many folks were estimated to have showed up for this um, entire event? It was about um, I want to say three thousand. About three thousand people. And uh, is do these rallies are they starting to occur more and more? Is there another one? Or are there more that you know of coming? Uh, planned or, or we just looking at a one-time event here? I think it's, uh, no, it's definitely not going to be a one-time event. Um, you can see a lot's going on in Europe right now, especially in Munich um, and all over. And, and uh, one of the organizations that was there and they were the ones who kind of organized this was Sunrise Philly. And um, they've seen ex exponential growth in the past year. Uh, they organized it through hubs, which is a way that young people or just anyone really can get involved and organize uh, strikes like the one in Philly. And they went from, uh, within a year, they went from, I think about 40 hubs to over 200. And it's it's really growing quick. So I, you, you can expect a lot more. Good. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll pass it over to um, to Diane. What, what other articles are, are you writing about? Uh, maybe some of the current events that you've that you've seen? Um, yeah, I mean, we're continuing, of course, to to write um, write about what's happening, not just in Atlantic City, but really throughout the region. We also, like like Mark had mentioned, we aggregate a lot of content from other news partners that, um, and you can see it all, you know, on the website. Um, and what we're also doing, you know, we were talking before about what higher ed's doing. Um, we're also trying, we're reaching out across the university and we're talking to people um, throughout the university, um, we actually, we have a new, at Rowan, we have a new uh, School of Earth and the Environment. So we're talking about partnering um, with them, not just in classes and, and you know, um, t in, in terms of the program, but also um, for the website, you know, um, have people who are specialists in the Earth and the Environment, we're writing blogs, working with our students, our journalism students, and actually partnering in that way to get sort of people who are experts um, in climate, earth and the environment, uh, environment in general, working with our journalists to produce uh, stories that, um, that talk about the impact in the, on the, in the area, um, not only climate change, but just 
in general, some of the other um, problems that we have in New Jersey, you know, anything from pollution, you know, our focus is climate change, but there's other impacts, other um, problems that we have here, obviously, that we could be talking about. Um, development is a huge problem, overdevelopment in the area. Um, so we're looking, you know, short term, we're going to continue to write about um, what's happening along the coastline. We're going to also move to the Bay Area. There's also in, in South Jersey, there's this, um, this sort of the side, the um, western side of the southern part of the uh, edge of the state that's all Bay Area, which is also being impacted. So we're going to focus on that. We're going to continue to not only partner, like I said, with news organizations, but we're also going to partner within the university to um, to produce content, um, you know, uh, and get the word out. And the more that we, the more content that we produce, and the more partnerships that we build, and um, the more attention, you know, that we can bring to to the topic, then we can start actually sort of having more conversation about it, more um, discussion of solutions, possibly, you know. Um, we, we have a push for a big social media push that we'd like to make so we can actually start engaging people and talking about, well, what can we do? What can be done? Um, so that's, I guess, long-term, one of the goals that we have is to move toward, you know, talking about what can be done and uh, how can we get there? So that's, that's kind of where, you know, part of where we're headed for with all this. Yeah, we're getting some pressure even at Weatherflow with some of our sensors up that way. Ludlam Bay, Barnegat Bay, um, you know, we're, we're getting some, some questions from folks along our coastal sensors, maybe with NOAA, working with NOS, uh, Caracoos, any, any of these organizations that could maybe help fund water uh, tables, right? So, you know, we're, we're not really equipped for that. Our sensors can handle it on the power load, I believe, but we, we'd have to supplement and it's it's more of a matter of, of working together with a partnership to try to find some solutions. But yeah, that's a that's a prime area that we've been asked about as well. Um, let me flip this over to Mark. And, and as a department head, you, you're in charge of a lot. You're in charge of kind of I would assume maintaining some of these partnerships, or maybe getting new partnerships. Or um, do you, do you find it um, maybe easier now that more people are on board with with the cause here and what you're doing that you're finding more uh, cooperation with your efforts? Yeah, I think there's a, a couple things going on. Um, one is, as Diane mentioned, as, as kind of, you know, newsrooms have shrunk or gone out of business, news organizations are more open to collaborating with each other than they used to be in the past. It used to be like everyone was a competitor and you wanted to beat your competitor. And now we're in the situation where it's like we're all kind of in this together. So I think news organizations are interested in not only partnering with each other, but with universities, with uh, scientists, you know, I think there's there's some cool stuff going on as people try to figure out how to kind of bridge these gaps. So that that's one level. Um, yeah, I mean, there's I think it's become um, you know I think the awareness of of climate issues has increased, um, and I think uh, you mentioned Superstorm Sandy uh, earlier. It's, you know, that's kind of in the back of everyone's mind. But it's, if you go to a place like Atlantic City, it's something that people are still de dealing with on a daily basis. Um, so you see people are still trying to get their houses elevated or they're still trying to, uh, you know, get flood insurance or get payments. And, and so it's something that's that's ongoing. So I think it's uh, something that that people are they're, they're waking up to. And so that's that's kind of an interesting aspect as well. 
Understood. And uh, Diane, we, we talked, I was grazing a little bit about sensors earlier um, from, from our perspective, but from your perspective, are you, are you looking to supplement your efforts here, maybe even on your website with getting your own instrumentation to start monitoring the, the weather and the climate up your way? Yes, uh, absolutely. In fact, that was actually early on. One of our ideas is using sensors to collect our own data. And uh, we are still pursuing that. We are going to need some grant funding to do it. So that's been part of the rub there. But, um, but we do, we, uh, we've talked about trying to put sensors into different areas of Atlantic City just to see what's happening in neighborhoods, because that's how much change you can see, even in a relatively small area. Atlantic City is only 17 square miles, but there's a lot of change, to, you know, depending on where you are. Uh, in the city. Um, and also, yes, exactly what you're saying. We, we'd like to get some sensors out there to collect our own data so we can pass it along to residents and build this collaboration and, and actually work toward, um, like we said, some type of solution. Because if you know that one area gets hit harder than others, you know, you start to ask why and how can you address it? Yeah, we're starting to see lots of mesonets. Uh, more and more mesonets popping up on the grid. So more and more data is coming through. We're trying to uh, work with other partners as well and get that information, that public data out into to several products. And so that's that's great. What kind of uh, information are you looking to get in your sensors? What sort of um, instrumentation are you looking to get? Well, we were originally thinking um, just to, uh, originally we were keeping it simple, temperature and precipitation. Um, there's actually a different group in, in Atlantic City collecting flood data. So um, so we aren't, we weren't, so we were thinking, you know, uh, different areas, what's the precipitation, what's the um, temperature changes. Um, and, you know, in this, in spring, summer and fall in along the coast, as I'm sure you see in your area, there's huge, you know, huge differences in precipitation. Um, even, um, like I said, within the same city um, or in temperature, you know, um, so that's what we're looking at. So we've started getting some weather stations and we're starting to collect data. Um, we have one that we've been testing over the summer. Um, we think it's probably more than we need. So we may go simpler, like, like I said, and we're also applying for grant funding to see if we can pay, you know, start to place the centers around um, the city. But originally we were gonna start Atlantic City. We have some locations we scouted out. Um, and then hopefully, you know, uh, we actually have some news partners up and down the coast of New Jersey, um, the Southern New Jersey area, Cape May and some of the other areas. So ultimately we'd like to be able to partner with news organizations, put some sensors in, start to collect our own data and just kind of keep building um, you know, our knowledge of what's going on in these areas. Absolutely, I think that's, that's the key to some of your research right there is, is gathering your own data and, and showing, um, you know, showing some of those facts. I know I helped someone out here at CFC with one of their projects this past summer, Evan uh, finally uh, helped, helped him finish that through. And we were looking at Seabreeze structure, but either way it, it's changing, right? Things are changing. So um, any other questions about the, about the website or any from the rest of the panel? I think we're good. I think we're good. All right. Well, I'll, I'll bounce it over to Peter and uh, we'll, if anybody has any other questions they can ask, but I'll go ahead and bounce it over to Peter. I'm sorry, Peter, and say, <laughs> I don't know why I said that. I, I think it's between the Starbucks and, and uh, the, the Cinnabons, maybe, but um, either way. It reminds, me, it reminds me of the Hunger Games. Give your social media plug for you, your site, everything you guys have. Well, I've been cold worse. Um, so 
We are on Twitter and Instagram. We just made an Instagram last month. So uh, Twitter, it's SJ Climate News and same thing for Instagram. So we're going to be adding more and more on both platforms as we go on through the semester and going uh, going on next semester and however long this project goes. Uh, so you can find articles, videos, pictures, uh, all the trips we go on. And uh, even Instagram stories we did during our Atlantic City trip. So a lot of good content coming our way. Give us a follow and uh, share it along with other people, too. Well, Peter, I'll take over from there. Thank you uh, guys so much for being on with us tonight. Um, great research. And uh, hopefully uh, you'll be able to get some more grant money and get some uh, get some of those uh, sensors and uh, continue the great work you all are doing. Um, feel free to stick around if you want to. I'm not sure if we have our video break tonight. I know James had to uh, go tend to baby Theo. So I'm going to assume that uh, we're going to skip our break since uh, James is uh, kind of uh, multitasking here. So uh, Shay, I am going to uh, hand it off to you. I know uh, all interest um at least in the tropical world, is on the uh, the Gulf of Mexico. We are kind of winding down uh, the hurricane season, but until November 30th, we, we still got to keep our eyes on the tropics. Yep, you're absolutely right. So I'm trying to pull up one more little map here. I'm going to share a screen here in just a second. Uh, just, just real quick, you know, we're, we're still in that little spike, that little uptick towards the mid-October area. Um, and and after, after about the 20th of September, I'm sorry, of October, things start to really start to wind down pretty quickly. Our sea surface temperature is cool. We're really only looking at a couple of areas that are threats, such as the Eastern Caribbean, uh, I'm sorry, the Western Caribbean, and then also the Gulf of Mexico, Southern Florida, these areas. And so that's that's where we're coming in right now with our next system. And I'll go ahead and share this screen. Now, this, this system has been slowly moving across the Yucatan Peninsula on the Southern portion of it across Central America. It's just now moving over the Bay of Campeche. Um, let me update this. This is actually from 2 o'clock p.m. Here's the 8 o'clock update. So the chances are now up to 60% for the system. It's going to head north and then all, uh, eventually off to the northeast and head towards the southeast region of the United States. This is going to be on the move, and part of that is, is because of a cold front that's draped over the area. So it's going to be entering into what's called a baroclinic zone, uh, which means there's frontal activity. Now, whether or not this actually acquires a name has yet to be determined. If it's tropical enough to acquire a TC name, uh, if it becomes strong enough, we get a strong enough surface over the Gulf. But with this frontal activity, it's going to be riding along. It may be, it may not get a name. If it does, it may be, um, what is it, uh, Nelson? And so we're gonna we're gonna watch and see because we also have a subtropical jet that's going to be forcing this to the northeast as well. So this, along a, a front, another frontal system moving in, into the area, uh, may keep this as a subtropical or maybe even a mid-latitude cyclone. So we're not entirely sure if it's going to be a tropical storm name, if it does become that. But uh, if you see the track here, heading up towards the Southeast region, again, pairing it with our drought monitor, uh, this, this could be significant for helping with the drought in the Southeast region, as I spoke to earlier. Uh, much needed rainfall, hopefully we can get some of that pushed up into Western North Carolina, Northern Georgia as well, and up into these Midlands and upstates of each of these states for the Southeast region. With that said, Scotty, I'll push it right back to you. Thanks, Shay. Kind of stealing a little bit of my thunder. I was going to give us a little drought update, but as you saw the graphic there, Shay's already got displayed. Uh, we can uh, we'll do a little zoomed-in version of uh, of our drought monitor and kind of show you what's going on. So let me uh, get that pulled up. Are you guys able to see this? 
Let's see. No, not yet. But now you should be able to see this. So uh, here is a uh, look at South Carolina. There's several areas um, that we see of extreme drought. Uh, one up in York County, um, over into Greenville and Anderson County, as well as Oconee County in the upstate of South Carolina. And then over towards the Columbia area uh, in the Midlands of South Carolina and eventually down into Allendale County. Uh, those are just kind of isolated pockets of extreme drought. Um, hopefully, I don't, I don't know how much of the rainfall that we saw over the past couple of days will affect this. I don't say, think we'll see any of the drought conditions grow unless it's here off the, co uh, off the coastal plain. Uh, but at least the rainfall we saw was probably be able to kind of um, um, at least keep the uh, drought conditions at bay. Uh, as we look into North Carolina, not as bad. We have a large section of the Piedmont in the uh, moderate drought. We do have the severe drought over the um, Western Piedmont into the foothills and mountains of North Carolina. So that area has kind of been uh, targeted with the, um, the severe drought, I will say. And one thing that Evan will be talking about here in a little bit is we are going to see some rain and some cooler temperatures in this area. So that will help with the drought conditions as well. So that's kind of a quick look at the drought conditions. I'm going to pass it over to Evan because he's been monitoring. He's, he loves this time of the year. Evan's like a kid in a candy store when we start to get these uh, cold fronts to pass through and these uh, Northwest flow events to set up. So Evan, uh, I'll toss it over to you, my friend. Hey, real real quick, right. real quick here. Um, the, I got the name wrong. It's not Nelson. It's, it's Nestor. I, I don't oh. know why I spaced that, but Nestor. I was thinking of uh, Jeremy Nelson, one of the meteorologists was, we were talking earlier about it. So it kind of popped into my mind there. But uh, yeah, anyways, go ahead, Evan. Just wanted to clarify that real quick. No, you're fine. There's a bunch of... Uh, unique names this year for tropical uh, systems. So that's definitely an understandable misstep. Um, no, Scott, you're absolutely right. I was completely off the grid this weekend, had no connection, wasn't seeing a weather forecast. And I came home to find that we're looking at a pretty uh, amplified pattern over the next three, three weeks or so, especially heading into the end of October. Um, Lots of cold fronts moving through the area. The graph um, or the map that Shay was just showing showed that cold front draped over the area and really showed the low pressure system off the northeast that's currently um, bombing out and the pressure falls are just continuously getting lower and lower. Um, so, yeah, right now we're expecting much, much colder temperatures to move into the area uh, at least on two to three occasions over the next two weeks. Um, as Shay said earlier in the program, I will be hesitant to say the S word, um, but since it's me, no, I'll just go ahead and say it. I don't care. Um, I do think that it's entirely possible that the high peaks above, I'm going to say 5,000 feet, could see their first northwest flow snow showers of the season before um, the end of October. When exactly that's going to be, I think it's too early to say. Um, but as you're seeing on the screen right now, we're seeing this colder air move into the area with lots of temperatures down into the 30s um, and even into the 20s up uh, at high elevations. And that's what we're looking for when these northwest flow systems are moving through. Um, and we're getting that long fetch of precipitate or I should say moisture coming off of the Great Lakes. Um, in terms of serious rain, what you're looking at right here might be the biggest rainmaker over the next week. Um, that system that could be Nestor, if I'm saying that right, um, it, it could produce 
I'm going to say up to an inch, maybe across Western North Carolina. Certainly some locations could see more. There's still some finite details there to be worked out about where, what that's going to do. Um, and Scotty's already with this. I think he's got, he's sharing all the screens. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's what you're looking at. The WPC is forecasting almost two inches across parts of Western North Carolina, but certainly widespread one to two inches across the Carolinas in general. Um, overall, you know, we're just, we're stepping into fall. The beginning of October was full blast summer for most of the Carolinas. Um, the meteorologist, head meteorologist Tim Buckley in Raleigh was tweeting today that just two weeks ago in Raleigh, it was 94 degrees. So it, it's kind of hard to believe that we've made such a quick transition from full blast summer heat to now all of a sudden it's getting a little bit chilly. Um, and the mornings are certainly a, a bit nippy and frost is starting to work into the forecast. And Evan just said snow. So, no, I don't think that the hype about October snow is going to live up um, to its to its name. Uh, there's a couple of um, outlets mentioning the potential for snowfall on October 31st, and we're certainly too far out to know what exactly is going to happen at that point. Um, but with the negative um, North Atlantic Oscillation and the blocking over Greenland, it's setting up a great pattern for these uh, constant northwest flows to, um, to sweep through the region over the next two weeks. And while it really won't affect many people in the valleys, um, my personal favorite is definitely the high winds. Um, this time of year, I typically, as I've defined it, and I'm coming out with the research paper in the near future, high wind season is typically beginning in October 1st or around October 1st to October 10th. Um, and we're really jumping right into that. As we speak, winds are gusting up towards 80 miles an hour on Grandfather Mountain. Um, and that's significant that definitely defines the first high wind event of the season and as these troughs get more and more amplified um, and we see more of this northwest flow happening it's certainly possible that we could see some of the more extreme gusts up in the neighborhood of 90 to 100 miles an hour um, super lame for people that aren't into the high wind events but for me i think that's fascinating and super exciting um so i'm done rambling about the stuff that i love but scotty i'll toss it back to you I told you he's like a kid in the candy store. One thing I wanted to point out why Evan was talking about that. Uh, I know we're in a drought in, in Western North Carolina, upstate South Carolina, but um, I think I can draw on this. So let's see if we can do this. Um, yeah, there we go. So this is uh, the potential storm that we're watching. Uh, we do know that um, at least if you live here in the Carolinas, when we have this low pressure move across the low country, South Carolina, uh, low pressures have that counterclockwise motion. So we're going to see moisture being pulled into uh, the Western Carolinas from the Atlantic as well as the Gulf. So uh, these mountains, the Appalachian Mountains that everyone knows is loves, uh, could actually aid in the development of some significant heavy rain uh, over uh, Western North Carolina into uh, the Western Piedmont and upstate of South Carolina. Um, late Saturday night into Sunday. So uh, I'm not saying that we're going to see flash flooding, but the potential is there to see some um, heavier rainfall uh, develop on the escarpment of the Blue Ridge Mountains, just because that those mountains add additional lift. And when we get additional lift, we kind of wring out all the moisture out of the column of air. And we got to see uh, those heavy rain um, bands develop on the, uh, the escarpment of the Blue Ridge. So if you live in places like Asheville, Hickory, Morganton, uh, Marion, up towards Lenore, 
Wilkesboro, um, even a little bit down into the Charlotte area, uh, we could see some more heavier rain bands set up Saturday night into Sunday. So just keep that in mind. Scotty, leave that leave that there for a second. I, I okay. think um, if I'm not mistaken, that when you get a kind of lifting, it's called isentropic lifting up into the mountainous areas. Yeah. Yeah, so that that sort of um, when you have warm layer aloft, you have the subtropical jet over that. This is known as a CAD killer, um, and, and it can it can lift that you know bring cool air out of drive cool air out and bring warm air up underneath, and it just drives rain up the up the slopes. But also notice off the coast of South Carolina, North Carolina, especially around the Cape Fear area, where these systems have another tendency here to draw in a lot of heavy duty moisture and a lot of rotation supercells that drive into the coastline there, especially the Cape Fear area. So something to be wary of is uh, that area because it feeds off of the Gulf Stream, very rich evaporative water off of the fresher thermal hailing layer there. So uh, we get a lot of storms, a lot of uh, tornadic activity in that area. So always be wary of that with these tropical systems, even though even if it's not a, a named system or even a tropical cyclone per se, it can still drive that kind of uh, event into that area. Even with waters right now in the upper 70s, that Gulfstream's still in the low to mid 80s. Yeah, definitely so. And uh, thanks to Levi Cowan with Tropical Tidbits for providing all this information for us. We uh, certainly appreciate that. So again, like Shay was talking about, severe weather threat possibly for uh, the eastern South Carolina, North Carolina, heavy rain threat for the mountains and western Piedmont of North Carolina. I will say this, Evan, Shay, you guys can chime in. I wish we could buy this in December because that would be one heck of a snow event developing uh, for portions of the Carolinas. So let's hope we can kind of keep a track something similar like this if you're a big snow lover uh, in the Carolinas. So that is something uh, we'll have to watch as well. So again, Somebody uh, throw Scotty out of here. Yeah, yeah he's done. We're going to hold up a big sign that says, warm nose, no warm nose. <laughs> if he didn't say it, I would have said it. So I'm with you, Scott. <laughs> That's right. We're Team Western North Carolina here. We, we get excited when we see those set up. So uh, anyway, guys, thank you for uh, joining us tonight. Uh, we appreciate uh, everyone. Uh, Diana, Mark, Peter, Corey, thank you guys for the research you are doing. And uh, we continue to look forward to uh, more of the research. And uh, hopefully you can get some of that grant money and continue uh, to add on to the research project. Uh, everyone go follow them on Twitter and Instagram on all the social media accounts. Uh, we will see you back here next Wednesday night. We are going to be talking about drought um, from the University of Georgia. Uh, Professor Pam Knox will be joining us. Uh, she's going to talk about what we've experienced over the past two months is what we call a flash drought. Um, she was able to present some information on this drought a couple weeks ago. So uh, Pam's going to be joining us talking about the drought and it, actually how it's affecting the agricultural, not only now, but how it could affect it um, as we go into the 2020 growing season. So we're looking forward to that. And then after that, we're going to be talking about winter weather and kind of give you some refresher on some of the terms that you might hear over the winter season. So we have some good shows lined up for you for the rest of the month. As always, we encourage you to uh, send us some uh, suggestions of topics or guests you would like for us to, uh, to talk to or topics to talk about. You can do that easily on our social media platform. Just shoot us a message and uh, we'll get working on that. So we hope you enjoyed tonight's show. We will see you back here next Wednesday night for another edition of the Carolina Weather Group.